Well, good morning again. Uh, I am uh, just a few hours away from uh, engaging in a sabbatical for the balance of the summer. I'm grateful that uh, our church leadership was wise enough uh, a number of years ago to uh, establish a, a pastoral sabbatical for every seven years. And uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, very much. Uh, Kathy and I are going to be gone basically uh, from uh, ministry here at Living Water basically through uh, the end of August. They'll be back uh, the very beginning of uh, September. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, a bunch of things with a sabbatical. One of the, the requirements is that I take a, a class. So I have a, a two-week-long uh, coaching of Christian leaders class that I'm really looking forward to, to taking. That starts right after uh, the 4th of July uh, weekend. But our biggest uh, excitement uh, is going to be next Saturday at uh, 12.30. Uh, actually, yeah, the wedding's supposed to start at 12 o'clock uh, Pennsylvania time, but we're, we're dealing with Latin America here, so we've uh, already been told that don't expect the thing to start until 12.30, so I, I, the time zone messes me up, and then, then the, the cultural stuff kind of messes me up, but yeah, so we're leaving on Wednesday, Kath and I, and Mike and, or John and Lydia, uh, John's our middle son, Lydia's our daughter-in-law, and our daughter Nicole, and we're heading down to Ecuador on Wednesday uh, to do the, the wedding on uh, Saturday, so we're very, very excited about that, and uh, I know my son Mike is just bouncing off the walls to get married, and uh, grateful to God that he's given her, uh, uh, given him a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, young lady to, to be his wife. Uh, he's probably, my, my gut feel is we're not going to see him back in the United States longer than a month, maybe once a year or something like that. I think he's going to be in Ecuador for a very, very, very long time. So I'm glad he's got someone who, who loves him very much. So, uh, so it's, been a, it's been an exciting time for us. I had a, had a great time working on uh, the message this week. And one of the things that I'm a very linear person, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pastors out there that are, are way different than me. Uh, you know, you know. Typically, a, a pastor will study the passage, will come up with an outline, and then they can kind of work anywhere in that outline to develop the message. I even know uh, some guys that work on the conclusion first. I'm crazy linear. I've got to get the outline nailed down, and then I've got to know the very first words I'm speaking, and I have to work straight down through that message. And so. Uh, there's times I'll sit in my office for hours, like trying to figure out how to start this thing. There are other times where things just flow really easily. And uh, one of the things that helps me sometimes is if I'm able to start off with a, a story. And we have a resource that uh, Pastor Ben and I and, and Mike Bongo use on occasion. And it's a website called preachingtoday.com. And they have a a bunch of illustrations in there. You can basically put in the passage that you're working on and hit the search key, and it comes up with you know hundreds of different illustrations that you could use. And uh, I came across uh, this past week with a, a true story from 2005 that I wanted to share with you to just kind of start things off. And it's about a, a nine-year-old boy, Austin, who's uh, preparing to get his tonsils taken out. And so prior to his tonsillectomy, uh, as always happens prior to getting surgery, you're in the pre-op area and the anesthesiologist comes into uh, the pre-op room or curtained off area where you're at and applies uh, uh, an IV so that when you get into the operating room, they can run medicines through that IV. And this uh, physician uh, is like most physicians who work with young kids. They're trying to figure out how to make the kid comfortable and stuff like that. And this particular doctor, on his like little surgery cap, he's got all of these very uh, colorful frogs that have been imprinted on the fabric uh, on his uh, surgery cap. And Austin uh, thought that this was great. He called it the frog hat. And uh, so everything's going well. The IV gets put in. The doctor gets ready to leave. And as the doctor's walking out the door, Austin says, hey, can you wait for a second? And so the doctor turns around and says, yeah, buddy, what do you need? And Austin says to him, do you go to church? And the doctor says, no, I don't go to church. I probably should, but I don't go to church. And then Austin says, well, maybe you don't go to church, but are you at least saved? 
And uh, the doctor now, he's, he's getting a little nervous. This kid is, uh, you know, taking him places where he doesn't want to go. And so he nervously says, no, but after talking to you, maybe it's something I should consider. Well, this just uh, further spurs Austin on. You know, he's like, hey, I got a semi-positive answer to this. And so uh, he says to him, well, you know, you should really get saved because I got to tell you, Jesus is absolutely wonderful. And the doctor says, I'm sure he is, little guy. And he quickly turns and he kind of gets out of the the room because he doesn't really want to have any more conversation with this young kid about these spiritual things. So when the surgery's finished, the anesthesiologist with the frog cap is the person who comes to talk to the mom about how the surgery went. Now, if any of you have, have ever had surgery, you know it's not the anesthesiologist who normally comes out to tell you how the surgery went. It's actually the the surgeon who comes to tell you how the surgery went. So the the mom is a little taken back by this, but the the anesthesiologist with the frog cap comes out and says, hey, you know, the surgery went absolutely flawlessly. Everything's wonderful. uh, But I need to tell you what your son did prior to surgery. And now the mom's thinking like, oh, no. What in the world did this little rascal do while he was out of my purview? And the doctor says that as he's putting the mask on Austin, getting ready to to put him under, Austin signals that, that he needs to take the mask away. And so he takes the mask away for a second, and Austin goes, we gotta pray, we need to pray. And so, you know, you, you know, you know how the operating room is. You got, you got a doctor in there, a surgeon in there, the anesthesiologist is in there, there might be a helper, there's probably a scrub tech, a nurse is in there, you got all these people, they're trying to get surgeries done. This little kid is stopping things to be able to pray. And this is his prayer. Dear Lord, please let all the doctors and nurses have a good day. And Jesus, please let the doctor with the frog hat get saved, and start going to church. Amen. Now, the anesthesiologist says to the son's mom that this touched him. He says, I was so sure that he would pray that his surgery would go well. But that's not what he did. He didn't even mention his surgery. He prayed for me, Mrs. Blessed. I had to come to... uh, I had to come down and let you know what a great little guy that you had. Now, uh, he's done, and he, he walks away. So now we know, you know, if you've ever had a, a kid with surgery, what's the next thing that happens? Someone comes to get you to take you to see your, your child in the recovery room. And so the nurse shows up to take the mom to the recovery room. And the nurse has got this Cheshire uh, uh, cat grin on her face from ear to ear. She is just beaming. And the mom's like, what in the world happened in this operating room? And so as they're making their way to the, to the elevator, the nurse says this, there's something that you should know. Some of the other nurses and I have been witnessing to and praying for that doctor for a long time. And after your son's surgery, he tracked a few of us down to tell us about Austin's prayer. And he said to us, well, ladies, you got me. If that little boy could pray for me when he was about to have surgery, then maybe I need to think about his Jesus too. Now, folks, this morning, I want to tell you how that surgeon and every other person on the face of the planet can be made right with God. That's the game plan. And I'm going to do this by walking through what is perhaps the, the two most important verses in the entirety of the Bible. It's Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. The, these two verses, they are at the very core, the center of Christianity. They're a two-sentence summary of the gospel, and they form the, the central thesis of Paul's entire letter to the Romans, And on top of that, everything that you and I are going to learn as we make our way through Romans is designed to support and explain what's going on here in verses 16 and 17. 
So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, uh, make your way to Romans chapter 1, 16 to 17. If you're at home, you know, flip open a Bible, get your Bible app. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. We want you to take it. The Bibles are on the tables around the room. The only condition to that is please read it. Don't take it home and, and stick it on a shelf. Read it because it, it transforms lives. That's what the Bible does. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, if you're able to stand here in the room and at home, if you do so in honor of God's word, please. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, back in 2007, just two years after Austin's surgery, Sesame Street, the the kids' program on uh, PBS, uh, introduced something called The Word on the Street. And maybe some of you who had young kids back in those days might remember this, but what they did was that they would pick out a particular word that would be the word on the street, and it would be the the word of the day, and they would get a a famous uh, celebrity. It could be an actor or an actress, perhaps a a sports figure, maybe a a news personality, uh, could be a political leader, and they would bring them onto Sesame Street, And uh, they would hang out typically with Elmo, and they would explain the word of the day. Now, now Sesame Street didn't just deal with your ordinary words. They didn't deal with like cat and dog and hat and stuff like that. No, they dealt with complicated words, and they brought in people who uh, you would be connected to, to those words. So, for instance, they bring in Randy Jackson from American Idol, and he explains the word glockenspiel. He actually plays this musical instrument. I didn't even know what a glockenspiel was. Uh, they bring in Rachel Ray to explain what pumpernickel is. Now, I realize that, that we're on Oakley Avenue, that this is not Sesame Street, okay? And uh, I don't look like Elmo. My eating eating habits at time could be correlated to Cookie Monster. I I get that, all right? But if there was a word on the street here today on Oakley Avenue, it would be the word righteousness. Righteousness is at the very heart of Christianity. And, And what we know about it And how we pursue it, or how we ignore it, or perhaps flee from it, and certainly how we look to actually find it, or where we look to actually find it, dramatically impacts not only our eternal destiny, but also the quality of our day-to-day life. So I want to deal with three specific questions this morning. The first is this, what exactly is righteousness? Not a word that, that, you know, gets kicked around in popular vernacular very often. But what is righteousness? The second question I want to deal with is how in the world do we actually obtain this righteousness? And then finally, why in the world would anybody actually reject it? So that's where we're going this morning. What is it? Well, in verse 17, we're told that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Now, the righteousness of God can be viewed multiple different ways in in Scripture. And so there are three typical ways that that theologians have looked at the word, the righteousness of God. And uh, the first would be this, that Paul could be talking about God's righteousness as it relates to his character, to one of his attributes. And if that's the case... When we say that God is righteous, we mean that God always acts in accord with that which is right, and he himself is the final standard of that which is right. So God's standard, what is revealed in his holy word, the Bible, is the ultimate standard that determines what is right and wrong. 
So if God says through his holy word that something is right, then it's right. And if God says through his holy word that something is wrong, then it is wrong. And whatever God does, he never violates his own standard. God always does what God's word says is right and never does what his word says is wrong. And describing God, Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says the rock, and that's not Dwayne Johnson, that's the God of the universe, all right? His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now, I want you to contrast that with us. You and I are far from being righteous, which is going to become painfully obvious in this room over the course of the next several weeks as Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo, as he comes back on the weekends on occasion to preach, work their way through the balance of Romans 1 and into chapters two and three. Now, I'm the guy who pulls together the preaching schedule. And so I, I made sure that I wouldn't be around to feel guilty, okay? Like all you guys are gonna be feeling guilty over the next several weeks. I, I planned my sabbatical to be out of Dodge because it's gonna be kind of painful around here as we go through the balance of chapter one into chapter two and ultimately into chapter three. Now, the fact of the matter is this, is that we regularly resist God by doing that which he says is wrong and then failing to do that which he says is right. But we don't stop there. Our level of depravity is so incredibly great that, that, that we actually convince ourselves and in the process ultimately convince others that, that what God says is wrong is actually right. And what God says is right is actually wrong. And we regularly prove God's words in Romans 3 when he says, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So one of the ways to look at God's righteousness is seeing it as an attribute of which God possesses and which we don't possess apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. But there's a, a second way that we can look at, at righteousness. And it's this, it, it's to see it as something that God actually does, that it's an, actually an action on God's part. Specifically, it's the manner in which God is faithful to save his people. And God makes a, a promise in Isaiah 46, he says this, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. What God is saying is this. He's saying, you know what, Mike? You might not be righteous, but I'm righteous. And you might not follow through with the things that you say that you're going to do, but I'm here to tell you, Mike, that my righteousness will make me follow through with the things that I say that I'm going to do. When God promises that he's gonna crush evil or that he's going to establish justice or that he's gonna tear down walls that divide people or that he will never leave or forsake us or that he will save his children, it is his righteousness his commitment to his own standards and promises that ensures that he will do the very things that he says that he will do. And I believe that the Apostle Paul has both of these ideas in mind as he's writing verses 16 and 17. But there's another thing that I believe he has in mind, perhaps the most important thing of all. You see, the righteousness of God is something that Jesus has achieved on our behalf, something that we cannot achieve on our own. Look again at verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, 
as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, God reveals something. Something that has been hidden, something that people have longed for in the past, continue to long for now, but struggle to actually find. Something that, that they work tirelessly to acquire, but they just seem to be thwarted at every corner. And that something is earning the favor of God. Being found worthy to be in his presence, both in the here and now and also forever and eternity. And we all know what it's like to try to earn the favor of someone else. Be it a parent or a sibling or a coach or a teacher or a boss, a client, perhaps some kind of love interest or even a spouse. You see, we want to try to get people to do what? We want them to love us, approve of us, think highly of us, tell us that we have value and worth, but no matter how hard we try at times, we can't seem to please that person. We can't seem to, to meet their standards. And it's a horrible place to be. That's a terrible place to be. And that's just in our earthly temporal relationships. Now you bring God and his standards into the picture. And what's horrible? Not measuring up to some kind of human standard now becomes absolutely unbearable when we can't meet God's standard. See, God's standard is far from perfection, or is perfection, and we're far from perfection. There's nothing that any one of us, whether you're sitting in this room or whether you're at home, whether you're completely ignoring God totally, there's nothing that any of us can do to actually earn God's favor. But in the gospel, we are made righteous through Jesus' incarnation, that's his birth, through his life, through his sacrificial death on the cross, and ultimately through his resurrection. See, Jesus does what you and I are incapable of doing. He fulfills the entirety of God's law and in the process achieves perfect righteousness. All of those commands in the Bible that, that we can't seem to follow, no matter how hard we try, and all of those commands in the Bible that we don't want to follow because we simply don't like them, Jesus fulfills every one of them. And he does it absolutely perfectly. Listen to what the great preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. Jesus rendered a perfect obedience to the law. He kept every jot and tittle. In other words, he dotted every I, he crossed every T. He failed in no respect. He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon sin and upon all sinners. He took our guilt, your guilt, and mine upon himself, and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him. And so he has honored the law completely, positively and negatively, actively and passively. There is nothing further that the law can demand. He satisfied it all. So when Paul says, that the gospel reveals, or that says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He's not only saying it's an attribute of God, he's not only saying it's an action of God, he's also saying, most importantly, that, that all of the righteousness that we need to be accepted by God, all that we need has been earned for us, not by ourselves, but ultimately by Jesus. And that, brother, that's truly good news. Now, this brings me to the second question. How in the world do you acquire that? 
How do you get that righteousness? How does that, 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 that get secured in our life? Well, in the, 1960, or in the 1600s, there was a, a Catholic monk. Many of you will know the name. His name was Martin Luther. And he was haunted by these two verses in Romans that we're looking at today. He had come to actually hate the term, the righteousness of God. For in it, all that he could see was this righteous God who is angrily punishing unrighteous human beings. And and Luther, he has done everything in his life to to be an exemplary monk. But no matter how hard he tries, he's unable to to crucify the sin in his life. He wants to obey God's law. He's trying to obey God's law, but he cannot obey God's law no matter how hard he tries. So much so, this is what he wrote. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, or murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by God's law without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. That's where Luther was. He's furious with God. Because he sees God as having this great standard. He can't meet the standard. And then God comes along, knows we can't meet the standard, and is crushing people because they're not meeting the standard. And for years, Luther struggled with this, trying to figure out how he can earn his own standing before God. And then one day, God opens his eyes to see that righteousness wasn't something that one earns through effort. Rather, righteousness is something that one receives through faith. And Martin Luther wasn't the only person who struggled to earn his own righteousness, who tried to justify themselves before God. That, my friends, is the human condition. Every person on this planet, in one matter or another, is trying to justify themselves. Every one of us, every day, works very hard to prove that we have some kind of value and worth. We work incredibly hard to to try to not only be uh, accepted by God, but in many cases, simply being accepted by our friends or our family or our employer or our neighbor or a boyfriend or girlfriend or simply by the popular culture. And this is how it works. And we all do this. We study hard in school to get good grades. Or we push our kids to make sure that they get good grades. Why? Because we want to demonstrate that we have value. Yeah, we wrap it up in all these nice little things like it's really important, education's really important, stuff like that. But how our kids do in school or how we do in school, it determines whether we have value or not. We bust our tails on the field, on the court, in the pool, on the track, on the wrestling mat. Why? To validate that we're worthy. No one wants to go out there and lose and, and demonstrate that, that we're unworthy. We do all this hard stuff. Why? Because we want to show that we're actually worthy. We work hard. We, we strive to earn more money. Why? Because we want to prove ourselves in this capitalistic society that we live in. We agonize over tweeting 
just the right tweet or taking just the right selfie. Why? So that we have this perfect social media image. We code switch by adjusting the style of our speech, appearance, and behavior, and expression. Why? So that we can fit in. So that others might accept us. We embrace this cause or that cause because why? We, we want people to, to think the, the best of us. In the words of Dave Ramsey, you might like him, you might hate him, but this quote is amazing. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. That's the human condition. And we do it all to earn our own righteousness. And what is amazing is is we do it to, to please all of these little gods that have a little G in front of their name that we actually worship. These gods that we've got lined up inside of our heart. They're all these little idols. The idol of prosperity. The idol of rugged individualism. The idol of education, and intellectual superiority, the idol of power, and beauty, and pleasure, and comfort, the idol of race, or sexuality, or politics, or political correctness, the idol of social acceptance. And the list goes on and on and on. And that's just the God's with a little g. Then what about the God with with the big G? What about the God of the Holy Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who who parts the Red Sea, who incarnates himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the God that lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, raised back to life, and is coming again. What do we do to prove our worth to him? We do all of the right things for all of the wrong reasons. We go to church. We pray. We give, we serve, we fast, we give to the needy. We do our best not to sin. And while all those things are great, in it, none of those things, none of those actions make us right before God because all of those actions, even these moral things we try to do, they're really not about God. A lot of times they're about us trying to make God accept us. So what makes us right with God? It's right there in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible, it's for point of emphasis. And that faith from faith or that faith to faith means that faith and faith alone is the only basis for our right standing with God. Righteousness is, it's never ever earned. Rather, it's given by God to those who place their faith in his son. And Paul reinforces this whole thing when when he quotes Habakkuk by saying this, the righteous shall live by faith. But what in the world is faith? Faith is not a work. Rather, faith is believing in God and humbly receiving the gift of righteousness that he freely offers. James Montgomery Boyce says faith has three elements. Let me run through them quickly. First, It must have knowledge. It's not an attitude. It involves content. You have to have faith in something. We'll run into people all the time say, well, I'm a a person of faith. Yeah, well, that's great. What is your your faith in? I mean, people, what are you talking about? Faith has to have context. Context. For the Christian, it's what? It is faith in something. That something is what? Jesus. 
You need to have faith in Jesus. Number two, faith consists of a heart response to the gospel. It always demands a relationship. It actually involves loving God because of what he's done for us through Jesus. It's not some kind of intellectual exercise. Faith is a love relationship with the God of the universe. It's not some kind of hoity-toity, highfalutin, philosophical thing that's out there. Number three, faith demands personal commitment. Jesus isn't just a savior or someone else's savior. He's actually my savior. Now, as I ponder this, who in the world wouldn't want this? Who in the world wouldn't want to, to be made right with God? Who, 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 would, who would push back against us? Who rejects this? Well, clearly, we're told in verse 16, there were people in Paul's day who rejected this. Let me read the verse for you. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the the Greek word that has been translated ashamed here can also be translated offended. And while Paul might not have been offended by the gospel, there's certainly a group of people who have been offended by the gospel. So what is so incredibly offensive about the gospel? Here's a a couple things that I've gleaned through my studies. Number one, the gospel is offensive because it seems so incredibly easy. People come along and say, what do you mean I don't got to earn this? What What do you mean that it's actually free? You gotta earn everything in this world. That's the way this world operates. How can this be free? And people hear that the gospel is received by faith and not by works, and they conclude what? It is simply too easy. It's too good to be real. And what I find so amazing about this is that people don't understand faith if they think that faith is actually easy. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, there is an account of a father who has a son who's being harassed by a demon. And this demon's doing all kinds of, of, of physically terrible things to this kid. And do you remember the interaction that Jesus has with the guy You remember what the guy actually says to Jesus? He says this, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, think about the dad who's got this ill kid. He's got Jesus right in front of him. He's got Jesus, the the one who has healed lepers, who's fed 5,000, who's walked on water. He's got him right in front of him. And yet the guy struggles to believe. Faith is hard. Yet people reject Christianity because they think it's just simply too easy. If it's so easy, why in the world isn't everybody coming to Jesus? Taking that step of faith, that's hard. Two, the gospel is offensive because it's undeserved. You see, what the gospel tells us is that we are sinners and that we don't deserve salvation. And this is a huge problem 
for the religious person who is placing their trust in their morality. And it's an equally huge problem for the non-religious person who considers themselves a good person. You see, when we feel morally superior to other people, the gospel comes along and says, there is no one good, not even one. Let me tell you a little story. I'd like to think that I'm a, a somewhat moral person. So on Thursday, uh, Kathy and I, we, we live over at the corner of Progress Avenue and Union Deposit Road, right in that little neighborhood called Latchmere. We live right by the swimming pool there. And uh, on Thursday evening, we were uh, actually, we were heading out, we had to drop some stuff off, and we, we pulled out of our neighborhood, and we pulled onto Progress Avenue, and we were heading down here towards Pakistan. We're only about a block from our house, and as we're, we're driving down the road, on the left-hand side, right up against the, uh, that part of Pakistan Street, uh, there's like a kind of a hill right there, so it's like the, ro- or I mean, pro- pa- Paxton, or Progress Avenue, which becomes Pakistan Avenue, but that part of Progress Avenue is right along a, uh, a hill that goes up to people's houses, and it's a really steep hill, and, and there's not a lot of room. There's no, not much of a medium there. And so there, there's a, a woman on, a, on, a, on a, uh, one of those, like, motorcycles that you're bent over on kind of thing, on this really fast motor, and she's in the weeds there up against the wall. And, you know, you drive by that, and it takes a minute for your brain to process that there's something that doesn't look right about this. And so Cass says to me, she goes, hey, we better turn around. I'm like, yeah. So we, we swing back into our neighborhood, come around the block, and I get out of the car to, uh, to help this lady. And I, I find out that she's just learned how to ride a motorcycle, and it's probably got a little bit more horsepower than she probably should be riding at that time. And uh, she says she hit a rock. I think something else probably happened. But the bottom line is she bent the uh, the shifter that you shift the gears with your foot and she couldn't get the thing into gear. And so her, her husband is, is coming along, she tells me. And I'm like, well, we'll stay here until your, your husband arrives. And, and so we, we, we stop and we do this really nice thing. And you think it's like a really godly thing, right? But the very fact that I'm telling you this means I made it all about myself. It wasn't about God. It was about Mike Leonzo and Kathy Leonzo looking good when you really get down to the bottom of it. That most of the, most of the good things that we actually do in life, they're, they're actually driven. Why? Because it actually makes us look good or it goes good for us. It's not done out of goodness to God. Yet we sit there and we think that we're these incredibly moral people and we're trusting in our morality. And the fact of the matter is we are so stinking bad that Jesus had to die for us. That's how bad we are. Even on our best woman motorcycle saving days. And people don't like that. They don't like to be told that they're sinful and that they don't deserve salvation, even when it's freely offered. Number three, the gospel is offensive because it's about sacrifice and service. It's about considering other people better than yourselves. And if we are completely honest, sacrifice and service are really not values that our society embraces very much. We live in this completely self-centered culture. And how do we know this? Because one of the most important things to us is what? We want our kids to have what? Self-esteem. It's all, our kids don't need to think any better about themselves. They think they're wonderful as it is. But we're all about self-esteem and self-awareness and self-fulfillment. We live in this culture that, that seeks comfort and pleasure. And that's how, how, how people come into Christianity. They think it should be wonderful. Everything should be good. How many people begin to engage with Jesus, expecting that he's going to take away all their troubles and take care of all their issues, and then they run smack dab into Jesus' words in John 15 and John 16. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Sign me up for that. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, when trials come our way, and life doesn't go the way that we want it to go, or some preacher comes along and says things that we don't want to hear, something that brings conviction, we're quick to abandon faith and the church and many times Jesus altogether because it's all about sacrifice and service. And so many times we want it to be just about us. Fourth, the gospel is offensive because it's the great equalizer. You see, when Paul says in verses 16, or verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek, what he's saying is the gospel is for everybody. But the reality is, that's not how we roll. As much as we like to talk about equality and justice for all people, the reality is this. We love our tribes. We love being the good guy or the good gal. We love to surround ourselves with a bunch of other good guys and good gals who think the same thing that we do and who see everybody outside of the tribe as being bad guys and bad gals. We're Republicans, and we're absolutely convinced that all Democrats are bad. Or we're Democrats, and we're absolutely convinced that all Republicans are bad. You go through an election, Invariably, this happens all the time. People come up to me like, Pastor Mike, I can't believe that that person calls himself a Christian and they're a Republican. Or Pastor, and then like 20 minutes later, I'll hear someone else, Pastor Mike, I can't believe that that person calls himself a Christian and they're a Democrat. We love our tribes. We love lumping everybody into one big pile. We're good here, everybody else is bad over here. That's the way we roll. We're rich, and we believe all the poor people are lazy. We're poor, and we believe all the rich people are greedy. We're management, and we don't trust the unions. We're union, we don't trust the management. We're this skin tone or that skin tone. And everybody else who doesn't look like us is either woke, a racist, or a supremacist. And the tribalism, it goes on and on and on and on because deep down inside of us, we love our tribe more than we love Jesus and the gospel. And then the gospel shows up and tosses Galatians 3.28 on the table. But now a faith has come, and we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore what? No Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Suddenly when that happens... Suddenly we discover that in Jesus, we're not divided by our ethnicity, our economic status, or our gender, or our social status. Rather, we are brothers and sisters of the King, children of God, heirs to God's promise. And sadly, that's not what most people want. Most people want division rather than unity. 
They want to be served rather than serve. And they want power and position, not humility and sacrifice. Yet in the midst of all of those who were offended, there will be a remnant that actually get it. Who aren't seeking a, a righteousness on their own, but are rather seeking a righteousness that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. And may you and I be that remnant. May God use us in the same powerful way that he used the Christians in Rome and throughout all of Asia and the Middle East some 2,000 years ago. And may God allow us to be that remnant that, that changes the church and our community and maybe our world because we realize how incredibly beautiful the righteousness of God is that comes through faith and not through effort. Let's pray. Lord God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for how we so consistently try to justify ourselves before others and you? Lord, would you help us to see the absolute beauty of the gospel? That while we are yet sinners, we are loved. Not because of anything that we have done, but simply because you are good and kind and merciful. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough that you were willing to die on the cross for us. And Lord, help us as we ponder our own salvation and are overwhelmed by your grace. Help us to be a grace-filled people that offer love and kindness to others. And through that love and kindness, Heavenly Father, might they see the love and kindness that flows through your son's shed blood. And it's through his risen name we pray. And all God's people said,